Hey everybody, if you listen to the Great Light Podcast, I have a favor to ask of you. Would you go and leave us a review? That's a great way that you can help us to get the podcast out in front of more people. For whatever reason, when we get more positive reviews on the podcast, it encourages the podcast platforms to put out our content in front of more people. So that would be a great help if you could just take a a couple minutes, leave a review, um, let us know what you think. It's always helpful and encouraging for me as well to see what you're being helped by, what content you're you're learning from and, and things like that. So again, if you could do us a big favor, take a couple minutes, leave a review, and I would very much appreciate it. listening to the Great Light Podcast. This podcast is a production of Great Light Studios. For more information and resources, or to watch our films, go to greatlightstudios.com or find us on Facebook or YouTube. If you would like to support the ministry of Great Light Studios, you can do so easily and securely through our website. There, you can also find both video and audio versions of the podcast. Well, Mac, thank you so much for coming on, be willing to have this conversation with me. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here, happy to discuss. So this kind of kind of started in an Instagram post, and I was trying to remember exactly what it was, but there was a Desiring God post that I think we both commented on, had a little interaction. Can you remember what the post was even about? Because it's been a, a week or so now since that that discussion on that post and I can't even remember what the Desiring God post was. So it, it's actually, it's, it's quite funny um, in, in light of my views on things because the, the post is uh, alluding to at least limited atonement and it says uh, all of the sins of all those who would ever be united to Christ by faith were punished in Jesus. And I know I, I commented that, uh, as are, or along with all those who would not be united by faith, First John two two, uh, okay, and that sparked quite a bit of discussion. Uh, That's right. I saw, so I think that was that was the first comment I saw. So uh, my immediate thought was, oh, this is somebody who is is going against the Calvinistic doctrine <laughs> in this post. But that, I, later to find that's not exactly the case. Indeed. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I'm a four point Calvinist, so I, I disagree with limited atonement, but I affirm the other four points and, uh, quite to, to, uh, quite strong degree. And I know, I know that, um, I think you had posted a comment on there as well that I responded to. So what I said in response, it looks like this is probably my first response, um, mm-hmm. I said, this This is a, so again, the, the post was all the sins, this is by a quote from John Piper, all the sins of all those who would ever be united to Christ by faith were punished in Jesus. And so my comment was, this is a fancy way of saying God loves a select few people throughout history. The rest he created for the purpose of punishing them with eternal fire for those sins that he determined they would commit. And, and then I say kind of maybe a more, offensive comment where, where I say anyone who thinks Calvinism presents good news needs to ponder it a little bit more thoroughly. And so I guess mm-hmm. that was probably the comment that got your attention. 
So, so then you said, does God determining their lack of salvation mean that he caused and is responsible for it? Or did they willingly and complicitly sin and get punished justly for their sin according to God's plan? So, yeah, so that's interesting. And that's, that's kind of that whole conversation. It looks like it started around the, <clears throat> this quote from Desiring God, John Piper, about limited atonement. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure, you know, some of what we were kind of the conversation we were moving toward in that convert or that comment thread, um, you asked if we can move it to email and then ultimately to a personal conversation, which I really valued that because I try, I try to do that with people often and very few are ever willing to, to do that because it's so easy in those in Instagram or YouTube comments to to say things or to behave in, in a way that you want it to a person's face. And so, yeah, um, and, and not only that, but also just, I, I think that, I think I, I mentioned this in the comment, but I think it's just insufficient for the level of discussion that's needed in, in some of these things. Absolutely. Uh, right. I know at one point I commented on some of the nuance that exists in these discussions. And uh, I think that when you've just got a wall of text, a big block, it, it can be very hard to, to understand. And it's, it's very easy to just go on and on. Right. Uh, no ability to ask questions, things like that. So I, I much prefer uh, yes. just an interaction, uh, yep. a dialogue rather than- And so, yeah, and so that's kind of the goal of this conversation is, is two guys who both love Jesus. I, I told Mac before we started this conversation that I view Mac as a brother in Christ. Uh, he said the same to me. And so the purpose here is, is we might get into a little bit of what the, that desiring God post was, was um, alluding to. Uh, but, but we want to just have a conversation, share our disagreements, and look at maybe even some specific topics. So maybe we, you know, it's going to be kind of hard telling at this point how far we'll get. But some of the things that we want to talk about are, you know, maybe talk about Ephesians chapter 1, which is a big um, kind of debated passage, uh, uh, definitely a commonly used passage for Calvinism. But before we, we kind of get down that road, um, I just kind of wanted to hear a little bit more about you up front, just about how and when you became a Calvinist and then kind of what were the core scriptures or, or kind of what, what was it that kind of convinced you of that um, soteriological view? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I, I came to the Lord in uh, my sophomore year of high school. Uh, it was due to some uh, some events that happened at home. I ended up getting moved out of the home and moved in with my foster parents. And through that, the Lord brought me to himself. And so uh, it wasn't really until I got to college that I started taking my faith seriously uh, and started investigating more about, uh, you know, I guess these theological beliefs that are, uh, you know, really anything more than just the basic gospel. And so, uh, once I did get to college, I was, I was wrestling a lot with my faith, um, just trying to figure out, you know, why should I continue following God? Should I? Mm -hmm. And, uh, through a ministry called campus outreach, uh, I, I got plugged in with that. Um, some guys just walked up to me one day and started talking to me and, uh, down the road throughout that freshman year, I got plugged in there at UNCG's campus in North Carolina. Uh, and so 
through that is really uh, where where I started learning more about the Bible, more about um, you know why certain beliefs are the way they are, and and what the Bible has to say about them. And campus outreach is uh, pretty pretty inarguably uh, a Calvinistic leaning organization. Yeah. Uh, so that's naturally the outcome that would come yep. from being in that circle. Uh, and so I know John Piper himself actually is a, is a endorsed campus outreach a few times. Okay. Okay. So funny that, that makes sense. Then comes back around again. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, it always comes so, back to John Piper in these conversations. <laughs> always. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it was actually, we actually went through, uh, through Romans, uh, one, one semester and, uh, obviously going through Romans under a Calvinistic perspective being taught mm-hmm. from that gave me a lot of insight uh, yep. and also through, through Ephesians as well. So I, I would say those, those are pretty key. Um, yeah, just the, the depravity of man in Romans one and one through three really. And, uh, then just, you know, the, the, the inability I, I would say of, of man to come to God without God acting in man specifically in Romans 8, 9, mm-hmm. uh, and then, yeah, of course, Ephesians. Uh, and so the, that's, that's some of the, some of the key scripture there. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 yep. is, is very big. Dead and trespasses and sins and things like yeah. that. Yep. yep. And, uh, you know, of course, when you first hear that, it, it's easy to think, yeah, if, if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, it, one of the logical conclusions is that we, couldn't do anything about it. Right. And so, uh, I, I've since come to a more nuanced view on that as well. Um, okay. I, I won't be staunch about, you know, well, oh, I mean, dead means we're, we're totally unable, unable. Yeah. I, I actually look to other scriptures for that, but interesting. Yeah, that's so, that's so it might be sort of like a short, short little, maybe before we move off that too quickly. Cause I have one more question before I want to jump into kind of certain points that, that I'd like Mm -hmm. to get, um, your, your take on, but, um, but that aspect of dead, you saying that you have maybe a more nuanced view. I think that's, that's Mm -hmm. interesting and and helpful to know. And I think it's also important because that's, that's maybe one big aspect where, where I'd have a disagreement about Mm -hmm. the way, um, you know, somebody like John Piper to bring him up again would, would interpret this concept of being dead or somebody like R.C. Sproul or, you know, that, um, yeah, like you said, it's, it's not so much of a nuanced view. It's just very clear. Like if you're dead, you know, obviously they'll draw from the Lazarus analogy a lot, which, Mm -hmm. which I don't know how, how, how you feel about that drawing in that, that scripture to support the spiritual dead concept. But, um, but yeah, so maybe maybe what I'm getting at is I just what is that nuance? Would you say, mm-hmm. like, what's what would you say is the difference between how you view spiritual deadness in comparison to how like an R.C. Sproul or a John Piper would view it? Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I would say that it, in what I believe, it is accurate, but that purely from that passage. I could very easily see a different interpretation. So I, I guess I don't die on that hill. I die on other hills for mm-hmm. that point. And so, uh, I, it's, it, with, with some things, you know, I, I can 
I guess, concede or even uh, just be agnostic in, in my interpretation. You know, there, I, I'm perfectly fine with saying that we, yes, we are, we are dead. That means we can't do anything. Uh, but if, you know, if someone wants to die on that hill, they can. Uh, I don't think that it's as strong as other passages. And that's why I, I might allow, uh, or even, you know, uh, uh, I guess I, I could be convinced of another interpretation. Yeah. There. So. I see. Okay. So yeah, I think when when I think of the concept of spiritual deadness, um, I think it's important, at least in my mind, to look at the fact that the Bible uses multiple analogies to, or sim- symbolic analogies to, kind of describe the spiritual state of man. And so, mm-hmm. in Ephesians, obviously, it's it's this comparison of of physical death, like we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But then, you know, in the Gospels, I think all these stories of Jesus opening up the eyes of the blind and healing the sick. Um, I mean, Jesus says it. He says, I came not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. And so other points in scripture don't say we're, we're dead, but we're sick, which that that can convey a much different idea of what it means to be spiritually dead, I think. And I think taking that into consideration when we interpret Paul in Ephesians 2 saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, it, I think it, it does us well to consider the other analogies that are used and, and see how do these fit together. Um, and so it, it's, it's helpful to know that you're, you will allow that, that you're open to, to again, not dying on that hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I would say that I, I do agree with, the spiritual deadness in, in the sense of total inability that we, we don't have the ability to come to God on our own. Uh, but like I said, uh, you know, and we can, we can get into that if you'd like, but other, other passages I think are stronger for that argument. So I, I, I look to those rather, but uh, I think it is interesting um, that you bring up like this sickness as opposed to deadness. Uh, and so what, uh, what makes those, um, comparisons stronger than the the the, the literal deadness uh, in the passage. Um, I know that in in that passage it's compared to being made alive with Christ, and it is uh, pretty soteriological uh, directly. You know, we we were all following the course of this world. We were children of wrath, and then we were made alive uh, we, by fit, by grace through faith. Uh, you have been saved, and so. Yep. Uh, are there are there other soteriological passages uh, that you, that you would reference for that, or is it more about uh, Jesus coming and healing uh, people that are sick? Uh, like, are you mean are there other passages that would support this idea that the the physical sicknesses are meant to illustrate a spiritual condition? Is that what you're asking? Um, so I, I guess uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, I know I know you mentioned those those spiritual spiritual yeah. those those physically sick that are healed by Christ, um, and that that could allude to the the spiritual state. Uh, I know that in in Ephesians he's comparing our our deadness or our aliveness directly to our spiritual state. Uh, mm-hmm. Are there are there any passages that directly uh, compare our spiritual state with sickness as opposed to deadness? Mm. I would I would say the ones like the one I just mentioned about Jesus saying I didn't come for those who are 
well, I came for those who are sick. You know, I, th I think he was meaning to convey a lot more than just saying. I, th I think the major application there wasn't about the physical sickness that he he did come for that. But I think in his mind, that was obviously secondary. He came for those who who were aware of their spiritual, their spiritual sickness, you know, their spiritual blindness, their spiritual deafness. And, and so I, I think off the top of my head, I can't I can't think of. Now that I'm on the spot, I can't think of a whole lot other than that at the moment. No but, but I think that's a pretty good one to um, mm -hmm. convey that idea, I guess. Okay. If that answers your question. Uh, but yeah. I think I think for me, you know, this this comes down to ultimately, like if you really probably boil down this specific area at least, where where I as a non-Calvinist and a Calvinist would disagree, would it, it comes down to the question of of faith. It seems like, and is it possible for somebody who is dead in their trespasses and sins to have a response of faith toward God? Mm. Um, and I just, just to 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 clear it up, like I I agree with you, and probably not to the extent that that you would um, hold to, but I I agree with the statement that you say, man cannot come to God by himself, man can't and won't. Let, I would say left to himself, um, man, can't, man is incapable of coming to God. Man cannot, there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to reach out, to strive and to effort enough to where we can finally grasp onto God and, and say, I've, I've, I've achieved it. I've reached it. You know, I've, um, I've pulled myself up by my spiritual bootstraps as it were or I, I've lifted myself out of the the, the tomb of, of spiritual deadness mm. um, I am absolutely on the same page as you that that's not possible um, I, I think it probably the disagreement would come down to what what does that look like though what what is the the incompat the incapacity we're talking about that we have? What does that involve? What all is involved there? Um, and so, I think again, coming back to this idea of faith, I think for for and I won't put words in your mouth, but I, I would assume that in your mind, something like a response of faith. And I guess I'll ask this: like in your mind, is is it possible for a person to respond to God by? Um, you know, all the scriptures that say, humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. So is it is it possible for a person to humble themselves, as it were, and to turn to God and believe in him? Again, with, with this idea that I believe left to themselves, man cannot respond to God. But my, my assumption um, from the scriptures is that God has not left man to themselves. And so God man by himself if god just said i'm you know i'm going to leave i'm going to depart and leave them to themselves man cannot reach out and grab god but god hasn't left man to themselves um and so with the gracious ability of god's word of of god's revelation of god's light can a person dead in sin respond to that light in faith and and humility before God has made them spiritually alive. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that would be the question I'd ask where probably the disagreement would come up. Okay, yeah, so uh, I know I know that this was uh, alluded to in some of the uh, questions that we passed back and forth there before yep. we hopped on. Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, does uh, can faith precede regeneration, or, or uh, is it is it the, right. the other way around? And so this was I, my I number say, number four on the list. So we're kind of jumping to the end, but that's okay. Well, we can backtrack, but yeah, of course, yep. Uh, so I, I would say that uh, regeneration would precede a, a response of faith in that sense. Uh, I think so. So you, you mentioned the the scriptures uh, as a, a light to us and mm-hmm. uh, something that might invoke that response. Uh, I think that that is a means by which God. Uh, can, can bring us to himself for sure. So I, I would agree that it is a source of light to those who are spiritually dead. But I do not think that those who are spiritually dead, uh, without an effective drawing from from God through, through the Holy Spirit, uh, by whatever means that may be, uh, will ever choose to come to God or is even able to come to God. Uh, and I, I have a couple scriptures that that point me there. Okay. Uh, Before I want to hear those scriptures, I just, so, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong here, but basically then what you're, you're saying from your perspective, spiritual life, like basically God has to make us alive by his Holy spirit, awaken us from spiritual death in order to enable us to then believe. So yes, so I be- I believe that the the response of faith comes after God has uh, began this work of effectually drawing us to Himself. Okay, so basically, first comes spiritual life, or God raises us from the dead spiritually, and then second, because we are now alive, we have the Holy Spirit, we can now believe. Is that would you you might you might not put it that way, but would you say that's an accurate to some degree way of saying what you're saying? Uh, I would say, yeah, I, I might word it differently, but it, it conveys the meaning, I think, enough for me to agree with it. Okay. Okay. So go ahead and share those passages. Okay. Yeah. So um, the the first passage that I would go to is uh, actually Romans 8. Um, okay. So uh, not hopping to Romans 9 yet, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, in Romans 8, so here, you know, it talks about life in the spirit at the beginning. Uh, and so the, the verses that I'll be focused on are specifically 7 and 8. Uh, yeah, so verse 6, uh, we'll just start there. So for, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot uh, and, and verse eight specifically, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So uh, in, in light of that passage, uh, my question to you would be, is it pleasing when someone chooses God or, or responds in faith? Yeah, I would say to, yeah, to respond in faith pleases God. Faith pleases mm-hmm. God. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and so if we were all, walking in, in the flesh before uh, referencing Ephesians 2 here, uh, you know, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Uh, so we, if we were all uh, living according to the flesh, 
and and the opposite of that is is walking in the spirit which which is only enabled by the holy spirit in us i would say that anyone who doesn't have the holy spirit is not able to please god and and something pleasing to god is a response in faith one one thought i have about that that i would connect that to is um so first corinthians 2 i'm going to pull this up on the screen here okay and, and keeping in mind that Paul is speaking here, I think, pretty pretty clearly to believers. He's speaking mm-hmm. to regenerated followers of Christ. So uh, in verse 14, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is kind of in line, I think, with Romans 8 in, in the, the passage you just read. Mm-hmm. Uh, And then he goes on to say, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And then in the next, starting in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, Apollos, are you not being merely human? So the reason I bring that up is because when I look at Romans 8, I... I, I guess I would, to use your terminology, I would I would have a little bit more of a nuanced view of that, where mm-hmm. where when it it describes this this con- contrast between those who are in the flesh and spirit, um, I don't see that as this absolutely locked down thing where only non saved unbelievers can be of the flesh. Um, I because I see in again that passage we just read that these believers they had their minds were being set on earthly things. So their minds, like Paul says, you are of the flesh. What he's telling them, I think, is their minds were set on earthly things. In Colossians 2, Paul says, don't set your mind on things of the earth, set your mind on things above where Christ is. And so what that tells me first is that we, even as regenerated believers, saved believers with the Holy Spirit, we still have the ability to either... Taking the 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 terminology of Romans eight to set our minds on the spirit, or to set our minds on the flesh, mm-hmm. and so one last thing here is that in First Corinthians three, you see the outcome of. Let me pull this back up again real quick. The outcome of what happens when a believer is setting their minds on the flesh. So again, First Corinthians three, Paul says, "I could not, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people." But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. I'm hoping you're following with me here, but to jump Mm -hmm. back to chapter two and right before that, I think what he just said is he's kind of describing what he just said in in verse uh, 14 of chapter two. So going back to 1 Corinthians 2, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. So what was happening to the believers uh, is that their minds were set on earthly things, 
And what that does to anybody, whether a Christian or non-Christian, is when our minds are set on earthly things, we are of the flesh and we become incapable of understanding the things of God. Like our minds are no longer in line with the, the mind of God, the things of God. And so that's why in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people. I had to feed you milk and not solid food. I think what he's getting at is he's, I see him saying almost the same thing as, as Romans 8 is saying that these people were of the flesh and in as much as they were, they continued to keep their minds on the flesh, they were incapable of understanding the things of God and incapable of pleasing God. So last thing, all that, what I'm trying to say is I think that Romans 8 is describing a condition that isn't just unbelievers, but I think I personally, I have days where for whatever reasons, my mind becomes set on things of the flesh. And in as much as I as long as I stay in that state of mind where my mind is on the flesh, I am not setting my mind on earthly things. I'm, not, I'm walking by sight. I'm not walking by faith. I cannot please God. As long as I remain in that state, I, I cannot please him. I will not understand the things of him. It takes me stopping and repenting, turning back to faith in the Lord, setting my mind on heavenly things, getting back in the spirit, and then I can please God. Then I can understand the things of God. So, I don't know that. Sorry, that was a kind of a long-winded response, but um, I hope that kind of helps you understand kind of where the way I would view Romans eight because I absolutely see the problem that you're raising. But mm -hmm. again, I think I would solve that in my mind by just saying I have a little bit more nuanced view of what it means to be in the flesh and who can be in that category. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that is a lot. So I'll I'll, I'll move through that here um so just yeah going straight back to the passage uh, so in in romans 8 he talks about being in the flesh uh, yeah and so um yeah he says we'll just focus on verse 8 those who are in the flesh cannot please god uh, and so he, he he also says the mind that is set on the flesh uh, and so i don't think those are always exactly the same i think those can be uh, I think I think you can set your mind on the flesh as a believer, of course, mm -hmm. but uh, to be in the flesh, I think is is a little bit different. Uh, I know, uh, and others who have watched some of your videos may know about this idea of being in Christ. We'll probably get to that later, uh, mm -hmm. but this like uh, yeah, that's a, you're, in a sense. you're bringing up a really good point here, actually. That that so, I think. I think there is a distinction there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in Romans eight, he does say uh, those who are in the flesh. And then in, in the, the first Corinthians passage, he talks about how they are. Uh, sorry. Allow me to go back here. Uh, sorry. First Corinthians of the three. flesh. Yep. So he, he of says, flesh, uh, yeah. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And, yep. and just before that, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, when he first opens this all up, uh, in, in verse 6, he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, uh, though it is not a wisdom of this age. And um, he goes on to talk about that. And so he's, he is, I would say he is imparting wisdom about these things. Uh, and so uh, he's, he's addressing them as uh, people who are you know, spiritually immature, as people who yep. are of the flesh. But I don't think that they are in the flesh. Uh, in the same sense that the people in Romans yep. 8 are 
uh, you know, unregenerate in, in the flesh as opposed to mm-hmm. uh, of the flesh or acting like people who are in the flesh. I see what you're saying, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Um, again, so Romans 8, 6, those who are in the flesh, yeah. And I, I agree. You, I think you, you got me on that one. I think that's there is a distinction being made there. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I can see what you're saying there. So that's a great point. I think yeah. that, that I, I see that. I see that it's saying cannot please God. And, and kind of your point is to say a response of faith is pleasing God. So how can you be in the flesh mm-hmm. and make that resp- that pleasing response Mm-hmm. to God. Um, yeah. And, and just one more thing to, to um, continue with that point uh, is, is Hebrews eleven six, 6. Um, so we can go there. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, obviously the, the hall of faith. So yep. Hebrews 11 is going through and, and talking about what faith is and all these people that had faith and uh, commending them for that. And so, uh, yeah, at the very very beginning, verse one of Hebrews eleven, he said uh, the writer says, "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen." And he goes on to say, "Yeah, for by the by it the people of old received their commendation." Uh, and so uh, he he goes in to talk about Abel and Cain, and then uh, Enoch. And in verse six, he says, "Without faith, it is impossible to please him, God." Uh, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this, so this one again, is you have, yeah. So you have the same it, aspect of faith being what is pleasing to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I think a response of faith uh, is, is something that is pleasing to, to God. And so, yeah, uh, w- without this uh, aspect of regeneration, I don't think that anyone could draw near to God uh, because they're they're lacking this this faith that is supplied by God. Yeah, I think yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I guess I see that, and what I would I would do it, and let's hopefully, obviously, we've been on this this specific point for a <laughs> while, so we can try to move on pretty quick. But yeah. I would just point out, I've actually got like this whole list of verses. I'll just pull out a couple of them. Okay. That I think the I think the goal would be is figuring out how to how do you how do you take Romans eight and this aspect mm-hmm. of those who are in the flesh cannot please God and and combine that and figure out how these these verses that I'm about to give work together because so let me just go to Second Corinthians three um, sixteen first so it says even to this day when Moses is read a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, again, going back to this, the the ordo salutis, the idea of regeneration preceding faith, um, there's many verses like this that just seem to say something different because we have Romans 8 saying nobody in the flesh can please God. But here you have the turning comes before the removal of the veil. So what it does not say is when, whenever the Lord removes the veil, whenever the veil is taken away, they will turn. Mm-hmm. Rather, it says when they turn, the Lord will take away the, the veil. And then the next one would be Galatians 3, 2, where Paul says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing 
what you heard, or the SV says it more accurately. He says, or by hearing with faith. So this is a a rhetorical question where he's saying you receive the spirit by hearing with faith. And so again, we, we have the Holy spirit. It doesn't, it doesn't say, you know, you were able to believe by receiving the Holy spirit, but rather it's through your faith, you receive the Holy spirit. So for those who aren't following this, basically what, what I'm getting at and what you're getting at is, is what is the correct order? And, um, does it, is it, what I'm seeing here, the order is we believe, we have a personal response of faith, and then the Spirit comes, then the Spirit's given to us. And then, you know, 2 Corinthians 3.16, we turn to the Lord, and then the veil is removed. I'm just yeah. wondering, how would you take scriptures like that where the order seems to be reversed? So, uh, yeah, I guess I'll just address these two here. Uh, and so in the 2 Corinthians 3, um, he's he's talking about uh, we we have such a hope we are very bold not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end and so this this veil uh, is is also I, I feel like it's because it says uh, in in verse fourteen uh, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Um, and then, yeah, verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And so uh, this veil seems to be a, uh, in, in verse 13, it seems to be a, uh, a gazing at, or, or maybe even an understanding of what is being brought to an end. Uh, so that, that's one aspect that seems, seems fairly clear. And then also uh, this, this understanding of the old covenant. And so uh, I, I think that this, this veil is, yes, uh, referring to their, their understanding of uh, the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament, leading to Christ, leading to, uh, you know, h- how they can be saved. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So this veil of, of not being able to understand, going, right, you know, talking about the same, in the same way as uh, the passage, uh, you know, the, the spiritual things are, are folly to those who are perishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, once once we are no longer perishing, once we have uh, been regenerated, we that veil is removed. And so uh, when it doesn't say uh, that they are the one causing themselves to turn, it just all it says is when one turns to the Lord. And so it, it doesn't really speak to how that happens uh, right. as clearly. So um, I, I think this could could be understood in a sense of uh, you know when when god by his spirit uh frees these people at, you know in verse 17 this the spirit where the spirit of the lord is there's freedom when the spirit frees them this veil of understanding is is uh of, of not being able to understand is lifted uh, so that that would be my okay. brief quick interpretation of second <laughs> corinthians yep. 3 uh, okay and then in, in the Galatians, uh, did you want to respond to that or did you want me to hit the Galatians? I would just say, I, I think I kind of see what you're saying, um, maybe not fully following you. Um, I, I agree with your point that it's not, it's obviously not specifying how a person turns. Um, but I do still see like, like an order being given here that it, it does seem peculiar and, and, 
and, and and at least from where I'm standing, it still seems troublesome to a Calvinistic view, again, because you have this veil, which represents here, I think, a, a hardness, a blindness, an uh, incapability to see spiritual things, to understand spiritual things. Mm-hmm. But somehow, regardless of whether it's, it's you know, the person free will or, or God doing the turning. The point is that the order here, again, seems to be that the turning takes place first. And so, um, you know, and, and we could probably go back and forth on that all day. I, I would just say maybe that's, I, I kind of see what you're saying, but it, I'm not fully seeing how that would solve the problem, I guess. Yeah, I guess, uh, again, I would just say that this veil is their inability to understand. So, uh, when they turn to the Lord, I think is more referring to their salvation and the veil is referring to their understanding. And, uh, you know, the, the person who is uh, trying to understand spiritual things, the, the natural person cannot understand them because they are not regenerated yet. And so this, this understanding comes after the turning. Uh, and I would say this turning is caused by the Lord. So, yeah, when the Lord regenerates you, you gain understanding. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, you can, if you want to, if you want to look at the Galatians one and give a response to that, you can. Um, that's okay. up to you. Or yeah, if you want to move on to a next topic, that's fine. Was it Galatians one or Galatians three? Um, let me see. It was Galatians three two. Okay. Uh, yeah. So how did we receive the Spirit? Uh, so. Yeah, so verse 2, yeah, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So uh, I, I can see where you're coming from there um, in saying, yeah, that um, this this receiving of the Spirit comes from faith. So it, it, it would seem to make sense that faith precedes the, the Spirit coming into the person. Uh, and, and that's where I would draw my distinction in, in being that um, receiving the Spirit it is not the same as the, the spirit acting in the person. So I think the spirit can can bring about regeneration. And once regeneration happens, the spirit enters into that person. Um, I think that's consistent with the idea that God can. Can you say that? Sorry. Sin. Can you say that? Say that one more time. Okay. That last bit. Yeah. So uh, this this order here, I, I think the order would be that they are regenerated by the spirit. Okay. And then they receive the spirit once once they have this this faith that uh, it comes after regeneration. So what, so what would it? The the sorry, receiving of the spirit is the receiving of the spirit. It would I would I would say that that differs from the the action of the okay. spirit. I see. So you're you're making a distinction between the the aspect of of when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, like you're making a distinction between that initial moment and when a person receives the Holy Spirit or, or maybe like filled with the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and illuminated. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I guess like what my question would be from that is um, what is that distinction? And I, I guess, again, like if the, the illumination – of the Holy Spirit is coming second. If that's coming after faith, then what, what is it that the, that initial regeneration is doing? If that's not a receiving of the Holy Spirit, then what, like, what is it exactly? And why, why would you make a distinction that that's not 
that's not classified that that moment where god you know what is it that he's doing i guess to make a person spiritually yeah. alive if that's not a receiving of the spirit um like what what is that what's making that distinction i guess would be my question yeah uh so the the idea that i would convey to to answer that is is this idea that um I forget exactly the reference, but that we we are temples of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and so uh, we we know that you know all throughout Leviticus and, and Exodus and and you know the, uh, the Pentateuch that this the temple is is a place that's clean, it's unstained by sin. They they had to atone for their sin before they even entered into the temple, and uh, because that's that's where the this, where the Lord dwelt, and and we know that that God himself cannot be among sin. And so if, if the spirit came in uh, while we were uh, still unregenerate, while we were still uh, uncleansed from sin, I, I think that um, draws a bit of a, a, um, a dissonance between this idea that, that God can't dwell among sin. Um, and so I, I would say that God cleanses the person in, in that regeneration, that action of regeneration, and then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in them. Uh, I think I think that's uh, at least more consistent with this idea of, of God and, and where he can dwell. Okay. Well, we could talk about that that concept all day. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. appreciate your, your thoughts there. And obviously we don't yeah, fully well. see eye to eye and we could keep digging into that. But I would um, – I think what I'd like to get to next, if you're okay with it, is, is mm-hmm. just to – and again, maybe we can try to – be as brief, briefly as, as possible <laughs> on these specific topics, which good luck with that, I guess. But um, <laughs> uh, maybe going back to sort of what the initial conversation in the Instagram comments kind of mm-hmm. began from, which, which wasn't even necessarily from my comment wasn't, wasn't um, the, the main, I think the main point of my comment was the aspect of the justice of God, like how, mm-hmm how does the justice of God fit into a um, deterministic double predestination type uh, idea of, of how God does all this, how God saves people, how God chooses people? Because, so I'll just, I'll just put this out there and then I want to hear, I'll just get your response. Yeah. Um, Cause from my perspective, and I say this with complete honesty, like I, when I, when I hear Calvinistic doctrine and I, I take it to its ultimate implications to what it means that ultimately God, you know, and again, this might be a brash way of saying it, but I think it's a, a sincere, accurate, truthful way of saying it, that God created some wouldn't say the mass majority. Some might say the mass majority of human beings. Others, you know, I know there's those who argue that there will be more saved than those who are lost. Um, but either way, God God determined and and created a a huge mass of people for the the specific sole reason that He wanted to first make them creatures that could do nothing other than sin. They had no real capacity or choice to do anything but rebel against him just as god created lions and lions can do nothing but be a lion if you tell a lion to be a dog it's not going to obey you and in the same way god created so many people with this incapacity to 
do anything but rebel against him. And then not only did he create them to do that, but but then to destroy them in everlasting fire for those sins as a judgment on those sins that he himself determined that they would do without any other option or capacity to do otherwise. And so when I hear that, that screams in my in my heart, in my mind, and I think in what I would see is the image of God saying, that is not, that's not just. Like what, in what world, I guess, is that a depiction of something that is good and, and just? And, and how, I don't know if you spend a lot of time thinking about that particular aspect, but how in your mind, I guess, how do you, how do you wrestle with that and kind of what have you come to uh, as far as how you think about it to kind of come to terms with that sort of mentality? And correct me if I'm wrong, that some some way that I just described that doesn't accurately represent what you believe. Feel free to correct me um, if you need to there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so yeah, I have, I have thought about this and this was actually what, uh, when I first heard about Calvinism, um, this... I wrestled with this for a while. Um, I, I was trying to study out and figure out, you know, how, you know, yeah, how, how can, uh, you know, not only God just interfere with our will to, to, you know, choose him or not. Uh, and do we have that ability, but also this idea that, uh, yeah, God, God has you know determined that some people aren't going to be saved. Uh, and so, so I understand that, that tension and, uh, it's it's taken a while, and I've I've tried to study into it a lot. But uh, this, so uh, I, I wrote down a little bit of what you said, just to kind of reference it. But uh, you you said that we these people are created and determined, um, kind of for the sole reason, uh, mm-hmm. in, in light of the fact that they are unable to respond to be destroyed for sins that uh, God determined they would commit. Uh, you say that's an accurate summary of your yeah. position. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I would say that. Uh, it, it comes down a little bit to uh, what what does God determine, and uh, what are things that He allows. Um, what you know, ultimately, if if you think that you know God created the universe and that He is omniscient, uh, that, that He knows everything, uh, every way that every action would play out, whether it be His or someone else's, uh, you you could try to draw it all the way back to saying that God is the ultimate cause of everything. Uh, and I know some people do that. Um, I've, I've heard uh, some, some brothers in the faith say that God is responsible for, uh, for, for even what Hitler did, uh, which, which I think is uh, not, you're, not, you're saying Calvinist <laughs> brothers that have said stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Brothers in the faith that are okay. Calvinists. Yes. Um, and so, uh, this this idea of determination and responsibility is is actually uh, what what I love studying most. Um, so I, I I love studying free will, determinism, uh, and and moral responsibility. So this this idea of responsibility that that God for for what God has done um, is is talked about for sure in, in the Bible, and I would say that God is not responsible for. Uh, for these people's, let's see, how do I want to phrase this? Um, I would say that God is not responsible for the the origin of evil, 
um, or, or of sin. I would say that everyone is, uh, is sinful, that we have a sinful nature, and that the, the natural course of that is punishment. And so if not intervened with, that, that course will lead to God's just punishment. And so um, I, I do believe in double predestination. And the, the, I guess the, the biggest verse that I would use to kind of answer a lot of this is, of course, in Romans 9, where it says that, um, it's just, uh, so yeah, through, throughout verse uh, 20 and through 24, uh, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? So this idea that people are uh, set forth from the beginning for destruction, I'd say that there is, that, that it does bring glory to God because it, it greater, it, it makes known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Uh, and that, that is ultimately where I, where I come down on, on that issue is that okay. these, these reprobate people, these people that are predestined for that are uh, ultimately bringing glory to God as well. Okay. So I, w- I would love to jump into the Romans nine verse that you just mm-hmm. brought up, but I know that would get us into a whole Romans nine rabbit trail that we don't have time oh, yeah. for. Um, I would say that I think there's a lot more context that has to be taken into account with with the the vessels prepared for destruction or those um, prepared for 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 glory and and so on. Um, but but let's let's not go there because I know we could again we could spend four hours on just Romans hmm. nine if we want yeah. to I'm sure. But but I guess let me just ask this just to clarify. So do you believe like like I, I'm trying to find a specific quote and I can't find it, but I know I've seen quotes from from John Piper, others who would who would say things very clearly to to um, basically what they would say is something to the extent of God has determined. You know, it's not just that He's allowed um, certain behaviors or or things like that, but that God has determined every thought, desire, and action uh, of both the sinners and the righteous. Piper would put it to like, not nothing, not one atom moves apart from God's specific predetermination that it would move. And he takes that to even the thoughts, the desires, and the behaviors of of the wicked, of humanity, uh, of me and you. But would you disagree with Piper? Again, I, I, I should, if I was being fair, I would have an actual quote and, and I, I'll try to find one and put it in the description of the video so people can know I'm not I'm not attempting to misquote John Piper to make him look bad. I love John Piper, by the way. Um, I just, I've seen quotes like this. And so what what's your take on that? How, how does your perspective that you just shared fit in with that? Mm-hmm. So I believe that there's a... Uh, a difference between God's foreknowledge and God causing a thing to happen. And so this, this idea of determination, um, what, I guess, briefly, how would you define determination? 
Yeah. If, if God well, that, determined well, first, a thing to happen. That's interesting, and that's good to know, because I think that's a very important thing that a lot of people, a lot of Calvinists don't seem to make a great distinction between foreknowledge and foreordination or predetermination. It seems so often the two are conflated. And so I'm glad to know that you're, you're at least up front, you're not doing that. Um, so sorry, I, you asked me a question and now I completely forgot. Yeah, how was. would you define determination? Um, so I, I guess from my, from my perspective, I would say determination. When I think of that word, it's, it's that, you know, you can think about again, taking John Piper's way of thinking at, before the, the world was ever created, you know, back before, uh, everything, basically God pulling out these blueprints and saying, you know, John Doe on uh, April 23rd, 2021 is going to rape such and such a person. First, I determine that he will have these desires. He will, and then he will have no choice but to act out in this certain way. You know, th that literally God has done that for every single human being mm -hmm. um, for every every thought, action, behavior, et cetera. And so, so I guess... When I hear John Piper saying that, like my, the idea of determination I get from him um, is is more of that concept, if that makes sense. I don't know if that answers mm -hmm. your question or not. But. Yeah, yeah, that helps me understand where you're coming from and, and what you're asking. So I think there are things that God specifically causes and determines to happen. Right. Uh, but I think there are also things that he, uh, you know, it... it, it Ultimately, like I said before, it's it's eventually going to chain back to an action that God has taken if, if God has created the universe uh, and, and everything in it. And so uh, this this idea of did God cause this action to happen uh, is in some sense, uh, you know, how far removed is God from that action? And so uh, I don't believe that God has determined in, in this causal sense that every single thing that happens happens. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he knows all of it for sure, but uh, it, it, it comes down a little bit into this, this idea of uh, God's foreknowledge and how that interacts with uh, determinism, uh, oftentimes contrasted with our free will. And so if, if God knew that I would raise my pen at T being you know, right now, uh, if, if he knew that a thousand years ago, then uh for me to do otherwise would either would, would seem to either make God a liar or to change one of God's past beliefs. And so I believe I had free will to raise this pen. You know, it's, it's possible that God specifically caused me to do it. But uh, I think that this idea of God specifically causing every single thing, I, I don't, I don't agree with that. I would say that God does cause specific things and does not cause other specific things. So uh, where where that line comes down, I, I, it, it really does depend on what's what the situation is. Uh, but I believe okay. in salvation; it is always God's causing. Uh, you know, God is always the the agent that caused that to happen. Okay, so I guess with the again the the aspect of God's justice, how that fits into all this, just to be mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more clear than these people that you're describing as that are you know deserving of judgment the mm -hmm. god gets glory out of it out of their their um their condemnation ultimately but do they 
have any real meaningful ability, capacity? Is there any way that they entered into this world with any opportunity at all to do anything other than rebel and be the sort of creature that only disbelieved, that only rebelled against God? Did they have any capacity to do other than rebel? Yeah. Uh, I, the short answer I said, I would say is no. And uh, I would explain that um, there's, there's this idea in, in the philosophy of free will about alternative possibilities. Uh, it's, it's called the principle of alternative possibilities. And it refers to uh, whether or not an, an agent had the opportunity or ability to do other than what they have done. And so this, um, this idea that God has set forth that these people wouldn't be able to respond to him. Um, I think that God has caused the, the lack of salvation. Uh, so God has not offered in, in an effectual sense salvation to these people. And I think they are still morally responsible for their sin. Uh, so I, I would say that we don't need alternative possibilities to be responsible for the actions we take. I guess like in, in, in like a practical, practical analogies that I'd have to just pull one off the top of my head. But I think I really struggle with that statement that mm -hmm. having alternative possibilities is not necessary to be responsible for sin. So, so what I hear from that again, when I think about Calvinism is it's like, I have three, three sons and it's, it's like, if I hold this pen up, you know, and I, I put it clear up high and I tell my, my, you know, five-year-old son stand here, jump and grab this pen, which he, he can't possibly do. He's too short. And if you don't do it, you're going to go to your room and you're getting spankings. Um, I guess, again, it goes to like, in, in what, uh, obviously the, there's a difference between the sin, the wickedness mm -hmm. of, of people, um, and, and, and me having this command that's being disobeyed to jump and grab the pen. But I guess this idea of, of, my son has no ability to do what I just told him to do. And so what I, I think we, at this point, if Calvin, if this idea of Calvinism is true, it's like we almost have to detach from all of our um, common sense. Uh, I think just naturally designed, built into a sense of, of right and wrong, of justice, of what is good, what is fair, and, but I feel like that concept in my mind flies in the face of anything that any sensible person would call just and fair. Mm -hmm. um, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So this, this idea of uh, that, that we don't need alternative possibilities to be responsible for our actions is, is one that is um, sort of controversial and it's, it's best drawn out the, the intuition um for it, I guess, is best drawn out in what's called a Frankfurt case. And so this, this Frankfurt case is uh, one in which we say uh, it's, it's, sort of, it's a thought experiment. And so uh, let's, let's just use our, our, our brother in the faith, John Piper, uh, as, yeah. as our, our character in the story. He's here. kind of the so, whipping boy of this video. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's say that John Piper, uh, when he was born was uh, had had some team of neuroscientists plant a, a chip or something in his brain such that they could monitor his neural activity and 
uh, also be able to control or, or change his mind on, on a certain thing. And so uh, let's just say that in, in the next election, there's Republican candidate and Democrat, Democrat candidate, you know, you know, whoever they may be. And, and John Piper is going into that booth and, and before he walked in, he, he, was de- he was decided, he was, he was thinking, he had all intentions to vote for the Republican candidate. And he, he walks in and the, the neuroscientists that are monitoring his mental activity um, thus far in his life haven't intervened in any of his actions. But at, at the press of a button, they could. And they are planning to intervene because they really want the Democratic candidate to win. And so John Piper walks into the booth and he's, he's going to vote for the Republican candidate. But at the last moment, he changes his mind of his own accord. Uh, the neuroscientists don't intervene, but he, he decides for whatever reason to vote for the Democratic candidate. And he, he goes through with that. He, he votes for the Democratic candidate, casts the ballot, and walks out. That He's happy with his choice. He made it of his own accord. And the neuroscientists are happy with his choice because uh, he, he ultimately did what they wanted him to do. But they didn't have to intervene. And so in this case... Uh, it, it seems as though there is no possibility for uh, Piper to, to do other than vote for the Democratic candidate, because had he continued with this idea of voting for the Republican candidate, the neuroscientists would have intervened. They would have changed his mind for him, and they would have uh, brought about this, this different thing. And so uh, is, is Piper still responsible for voting for the Democratic candidate? I would, I would ask that. Um, yes, in that case. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so maybe like put that now in in mm-hmm. terms of of God and his his way of dealing yeah. with man. Like how yeah. how are you applying that? Yeah. So this 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 Frankfurt case uh, it draws out the intuition that alternative possibilities are not necessary for moral responsibility. And so I would say that in in this case, uh, man is born sinful with it with a nature that desires sin and that uh, and that they are unable to please god because they would because they have the sin nature and so that is man's fault ultimately because adam and eve uh, they decided to to sin against god uh, before the sin nature existed and it passed down from them and people naturally are on the course of of sin of condemnation of punishment, but God can intervene and he can cause this salvation. So although those people that are never saved uh, had no opportunity to be saved, they are still responsible for their sin and and thus uh, deserving of judgment for that. So, so even though there wasn't this alternative possibility of salvation, they are still responsible for the sin that's the sins that they commit. So did what got man into this predicament of being only able to sin, mm-hmm. was it not God who determined or decided in his sovereignty that he would bring these people into this world with that um, incapacity to believe? Because ultimately, I think whether, whether you... Um, put it in, in foreknowledge or determination. I'm not sure how you're, you would word that, but it seems as if still 
ultimately it comes back to God. Like it's it's mm-hmm. God who caused. I would I would say I would say using words like caused or determined mm-hmm. is is again if you follow Calvinism to its ultimate implications. I think if 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 you're honest, take it as, as literally as you can. It's, it's God who mm-hmm. caused these people to be in this predicament in the first place. And so I guess that's why I would kind of struggle with this idea that they're still responsible for their sins, even though it was God who determined that they would come into this world only with that capacity. I, I guess I'm, I'm still struggling with that. So is it... Mm-hmm. How did these people get in this predicament, I guess, in the first place? Like, why are they in this this state of being in this world incapable of doing anything but rebel? Isn't that God's, ultimately God's fault, if, if you want to word it that way, or God's choosing that is the ultimate, ultimate cause of that? When you ro- really boil it down, it's isn't God the ultimate cause of that? If, if you say that God is the ultimate cause of the fall uh, or, or the ultimate cause of Satan's fall, uh, then, then yes. But I would say that uh, the, 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 the causing that matters here in this situation is, is Adam and Eve just deciding to rebel against God. Um, and they had a, they ha- did Adam and Eve let, maybe let's get that clear. Do you think Adam and Eve had a legitimate option? Did they have the ability to do other than I disobey? Think, I think so. Yes. Okay. So the free will aspect, are you more in line with that? That was more or less lost after that initial the initial fall of man. Yes. Yeah. That's, okay. That's what I would say. I think it's probably the foreknowledge aspect that that I can Hmm. agree with a lot of what you're saying. I guess I'm trying to figure out how using that sort of terminology allows you to still fit into the camp of Calvinism, I guess, if that makes sense. It Hmm. seems like it almost seems like that's not Calvinism to word it that way. Um, Hmm. So I I don't know what 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 are your thoughts on that? Have you have you run into that? Because it sounds like you're around brother calvinist brothers who who would maybe say the same thing you know who would sharply disagree with with the way you would word these sort of things Mm -hmm. yeah so i i I have you know encountered people that um, maybe have a more strict interpretation that that god ultimately is the cause of evil cause of the fall uh, directly Um, like i said before i think god cause the universe and if he had ultimate foreknowledge of everything that would happen he's he is the ultimate cause of everything once you trace it back far enough uh, and so uh, I, yeah I, I would say I, I still fit into the calvinistic camp uh, yeah because i believe that man is unable to come to god on his own accord without god's effectual call um, i believe in you know total depravity in that sense of total inability uh, i think that sin has affected every aspect of our lives and um, affected our, our will to the degree that we would never choose God. Uh, I think that the answer to that problem is that God has to draw people to himself. And I disagree with limited atonement. So I, I think that there's a, script, a, a specific scripture that uh, directly contradicts limited atonement. But Go I ahead do and share that. In, I'm interested okay. to know what you, that one is. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the, 
the nail in the coffin that I would say is um, 1 Timothy 4.10. It says, um, I'll let you pull it up quickly. Yep. And I, I credit this to Mike Winger, actually. Um, okay. Uh, fellow believer here on YouTube, uh, Bible Thinker. This is his yep. YouTube channel. Yep. Yeah, I, and so, I'm familiar with Mike. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he, uh, I watched one of his videos. But this verse here, so for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so yeah. this, this, this contrast is... Uh, all people and and the specific is those who believe. And so if he's if if limited atonement is true, if Christ only died for the elect, then uh, the, this contrast wouldn't need to be made. It, it it would actually contradict the the idea that Christ only died for those who believe, because it says especially uh, and and you know especially is highlighting a group out of a larger whole. Right. And this, this idea of all people that's often referred to by the Calvinist as all types of people, all, um, you know, people from all tribes, tongues and nations, things like that. Uh, I, I just don't think that it can apply here because okay. you know, those who believe are especially, especially yep. included out of yeah. all people. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good to know. And, and real quick, what would you think of, would you, would you interpret first John two? in a similar fashion then where he says, if anyone sins, so first John, I'm just starting in the middle of verse one. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So would you, would you take the more Calvinistic Calvinistic perspective that I think usually would make this about a, you know, distinguishing between people groups. He died for all, types all kinds of people or do you interpret this in line with the the timothy verse we just read um i i'm really open to either i think that it uh probably uh, just to to be consistent is is more in line with um with all people but uh, i think that there are some indications that people have brought up about uh in this idea of are being contrasted to um uh, uh, other people groups or things like that. Uh, this one, it, it doesn't specifically contrast believers with the rest of the world uh, in such a clear sense. And so uh, I would agree that it, it is probably referring to R as in those who believe, but uh, I, I wouldn't come down as hard on this one uh, as many other Calvinists would. You have been listening to The Great Light Podcast. To find more information and resources, or to watch our films, go to greatlightstudios.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube. If you want to support this program and partner with the Ministry of Great Light Studios, you can do so through our website. There you can also find both video and audio versions of this podcast.